Hey everyone, Trace here. Welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today we're going to talk about the science of algorithms. Where do they come from? Are they evil or are they good? What exactly is an algorithm and so much more? Over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to dig deep into the science of algorithms. It's going to be super cool, so let's kick into it. Hey everyone, this is Trace. Thanks for tuning in to Seeker Plus today. This is episode one of three in our new series on algorithms. If you've never seen Seeker Plus before, it's a show where we take a big topic and we break it into chunks so that we all understand it a bit better and then we release them week over week. It's a podcast as well, so you can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you like, but make sure you subscribe so you get all of the episodes here on this series. So first, we're gonna talk about what an algorithm is, where they came from, how they got to be as popular as they are because they're not just for computers, they actually predate them. And we're gonna give you some examples of algorithms. So let's kick into it. Algorithms are everywhere. We know this because Facebook and YouTube, they use them all the time, but so do so many other companies, groups, and even just individual people. There's algorithmic sorting of Instagram and tweet timelines. There's advertising algorithms. There's algorithms literally around us all the time, but they weren't invented by technology or in Silicon Valley. It's just being used more often. The word algorithm is being spouted everywhere these days. But algorithms have existed for thousands of years. In 2000 BCE, Egyptians used mathematical rules and steps to complete processes. So for an example, every season the Nile would flood. Most people are probably aware of that. And Egyptians would use rope and geometry to redetermine the property lines of the people that lined the Nile. Why? Because the Pharaoh needed his money. He had to get those taxes. But what these did was they solved a problem using rules. They followed steps, they laid ropes at regular intervals with knots in them and measured the amount of land remaining after the flood so they could tax it accordingly. Boom, an algorithm. Sadly, there aren't too many surviving examples of these ancient Egyptian algorithms. The oldest known is on the Rhind Papyrus. It's a surviving Egyptian set of word problems. There's many, many of them, and they're all written on this amazing papyrus. Some of these involve geometry and how the Egyptians did this. So Ahmed's between 1850 and 1550 BCE taught us how to multiply any two numbers. And you can divide using the same principle in reverse. Essentially, you make columns of the numbers. And you know what? You should look it up. It's really awesome. It's really, really interesting. But anyway, this ancient math, again, thousands of years old, is the first known example of an algorithm. Etymology time, everybody. The word algorithm comes from a name. It's not a portmanteau. It's not a word combination or compound word. It comes from Abdullah Muhammad bin Musa al-Khwarazmi. He was a Persian scientist, mathematician, and astronomer from the 9th century. And when the Europeans showed up and tried to say his name, which is admittedly a little complicated, it was translated into Latin and Greek, and they used algorithmus. And thus, the word algorithm was born. It's actually sort of a weird, mashy word and has Greek for number sort of tossed in, but it's not a compound word at all. It's a bad translation of a Persian mathematician's name. Cool, right? And etymology time. What is an algorithm? It is a set of instructions that you follow to carry out any task or process. Every time that you have a process of anything, even if you don't know that you're doing it, you are going through an algorithm. Think of a recipe, your favorite recipe for your favorite meal. Every time that you go through that recipe, 
you have a set of instructions. And whether you're reading them or going through them in your head, that is an algorithm. So you have, say, eggs and flour and sugar and butter and vanilla and baking soda and baking powder and a specific oven temperature. And if you put them together in the right ways and at the right steps, you get sugar cookies, which are delicious. And it's a delicious algorithm. So thanks to computers, we are now surrounded by algorithms today. Recipes are one way that you might interact with them, but computers can use these same rules and steps to solve a problem with a process. So in computer language, you could say you have a list of one million piles of money, and you want to know which pile of money is the largest. So you would take a list of the amounts, compare each one to some random empty variable, say maybe the variable is zero to start, and if the number that you're comparing is higher than the variable, then copy the number over. So maybe the first time it's zero, and the first pile of money has five bucks in it. So now the variable is five. Second pile of money has three, so it's still five. Fourth pile of money, fifth pile of money, so on and so forth. Every time it goes up, the variable will grow. Eventually, the variable will be the highest number in those piles of money. No matter what you compare it to, it won't be beat. That is a set of rules that a computer can follow to find out an answer to a problem of the biggest pile of money. You can actually look up all these different simple algorithms online. They're very popular in computers classes because it helps you wrap your brain around how computers can follow these recipe steps. And they get infinitely more complicated, trust me. The idea of an algorithm, again though, is just a process. You have to know the rules to follow. And you've broken down every step in that process into some specific rule or variable. Another simple example. When I was in college, I took basic computer science. And you know, they had super basic computer science, which was like how a mouse worked, and I skipped that class. And I went to the next one, which was C++ programming in a Unix environment. I was way in over my head. But we had an assignment where we played tic-tac-toe with the computer. We had to write this program, and it had to try to win. Now, I was not very good at computer programming. It, computer engineering. But I created a set of steps, and they asked the board essentially where the pieces were. And then I would try and predict what move should happen next. Now, I was doing the work to try and do that. It was not a good algorithm. But there are good algorithms that can do this. I tried to think of all the different possible combinations of the game, which is crazy because I looked it up for this research and found that there are over 250,000 possible combinations that could result in a win, and I definitely did not program all of those. So my B in that class was maybe a little shady. But an algorithm could look at the board, and when they see two Xs, block the third space with an O. And if you teach the computer how to do that, it will just continually try and block the other player. The hardest decision for any computer in this case, by the way, just kind of fun sidebar, is where to go first. That takes the longest, because there's nothing to block. But again, an algorithm is a set of steps to accomplish a goal. And they are still based on humans, which means sometimes they're based on human failings. But we'll come back to that in part three. These algorithms can get infinitely complex. Sort of hinted at this earlier. Think of our piles of money algorithm. It was hard enough maybe to follow while I was explaining it. It doesn't do everything though, right? What's the point of tracking 
a million piles of money for which is largest if you don't know who donated that largest pile or what they donated before or how likely they are to keep donating those piles of money or where that money came from or what denomination it was in. The algorithm that I mentioned just tells you the highest number and nothing else. All those other things could be written into a new algorithm, but it would add all of this complication. And I'm no expert in computer engineering, but I learned a lot about algorithms for this job, specifically one algorithm, the YouTube algorithm. So let me give you a bit of a complex example of how an algorithm could work, but I'm not gonna get into the computer engineering of it, more in general specifics. If YouTube were a chef trying to bake the perfect cake for you, just for you, it would maybe give you a bunch of cake. See how much you ate, how long you ate it for, which ones you liked, which ones you hated, which ones you talked to your friends about, which ones you wanted to share with your friends. And this is how the YouTube algorithm works too. Companies have to dig up the best stuff out of every single post available on YouTube and they're publishing 400 hours of YouTube uploaded every single minute. So to find the stuff that's relevant to you requires a fairly complex algorithm. The idea is you'll watch YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, you'll stay on the platform for longer. So every one of the videos that you see on YouTube or Facebook or wherever has algorithms churning around it and through it to figure out what it is that they can put in front of you that you'll like. Think about it like when Neo sees the matrix. There's just algorithms flowing everywhere, right? So what the YouTube algorithm is looking at are things like how long you'll watch a video, what videos you click on, videos that you see but don't click on, how long you wait before you click, calling dwell time, how long you watch, what if you rewind? What about comments, shares, likes, dislikes, clicks, the channel's upload frequency, what videos you've watched in the past, how long you tend to stay on YouTube, what suggested videos to put in the sidebar, what videos to suggest at the end, if you make it to the end of the video, and whether or not you did. And that's just a smattering of their data. I looked at this video for 0.2 seconds and then I clicked on it, then I watched for 240 seconds, I looked at that for 0.2 seconds, then I clicked on that, and then I watched for 40 seconds, both of these videos have the keyword science. The first also has the keyword trace, say, suggest more videos with trace. Maybe this one about algorithms. The YouTube algorithm takes in all of this data, follows the rules and the steps to get to a specific problem, and that is how to make you watch more YouTube. It's complicated when you get really into the details, but the idea behind algorithms has always been fairly simple. It's steps to solve a problem. How we commonly refer to algorithms these days is sort of like a black box, right? It's, it's thinking, it's an artificial intelligence algorithm, it's some kind of magic, but what it really is, it's just math. It's just a recipe that we are following. When you hear someone say algorithm on the news, a lot of people talk about it in these kind of nebulous ways, right? Nobody knows the ingredients of all of these big algorithms that are affecting so much of our lives because the recipe is the property of the company that they're talking about. It's often the cornerstone of their business model, things like Facebook and YouTube and Google. If everyone knew everything about the Google algorithm, then it would be worthless because people would just game it all the time, right? Same with Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or whatever. So how is it that algorithms really help us? I mean, they sort and filter information, right? Algorithms are really good at doing that, at following rules to solve a problem or answer a question. They help us, say, make the best cake. They help us sort through hundreds of hours of video on YouTube just to find the good stuff, which would be torturous otherwise. And they can make the world clearer and cleaner 
and easier to understand, but also, I think, more fun. Algorithms are strings of mathematical statements that weigh different things and sort through information. This is great, right? Algorithms are awesome. This episode is about how algorithms help run humanity for the better. So let's go through some examples. Phones are digital cameras in our pocket, right? I have literally over 90,000 photos in my cloud library right now, but how would I be able to find just one of those on my own? By date, maybe? Sure, but what if it was spring, summer? What if I could type in the year or the GPS coordinates? Where was I? You know, all of those things would help me narrow it down, but it's a lot to remember. You know what's easier though? Just use an algorithm. Large tech companies have designed algorithms that can identify cats in pictures or dogs. They can tell the difference between a birthday cake and a wedding cake. Funnily enough, it's because birthday cakes have candles on them. There are hundreds of different options, rules, and all sorts of algorithms that are sorting and returning information based on these pictures just in my phone. Algorithms are great at this. All you have to do is find out the rules in this recipe, the steps in this process. So you could set a value for yellow, say, and tell the algorithm to return everything yellow it sees, or tell it to listen and guess what words are being sung in your favorite song. Algorithms can literally do almost anything as long as we can break down that thing into a process. So let's take one simple thing and look how an algorithm can make it so much better. But first, a quick break. Let's say that you're gonna spend the day running some errands, right? There are so many algorithms that are gonna help you do that. So let's say we have a new doctor. I have a new doctor, I gotta go to a doctor in San Francisco. San Francisco has over 2,600 streets, spanning 1,260 miles, over 5,300 blocks. <sighs> Driving directions? An algorithm will help me with that. There are literally billions of ways to cross almost any large city, especially San Francisco, which is interesting because it's only seven by seven miles. But a good way to think about a driving direction algorithm is to think about the Sudoku puzzle. The Sudoku puzzle is a great example of something called the combinatorial explosion. If you have two boxes, and you can put a one or a two in those boxes, you only have two options to solve the puzzle. With three boxes, a one, two, or three, now you have 12 options. With nine boxes, you have five billion, billion, billion options. Not that many more boxes, you guys. <laughs> that many that quickly is the combinatorial explosion. The idea is the more options you have, the more difficult it is to pick the right one the more options there are to calculate. And this all works whether you're a Google person, an Apple person, a Wazer, you like Bing Maps or MapQuest, I guess, if that's still a thing. But all of these can trace their driving direction algorithm back to an idea from the 1950s. A programmer named Edgar Dijkstra needed to know the power of a new Dutch computer that was being built. So he programmed it to find the shortest route between 64 different cities. He looked at the closest starting point and only their distances. How he did it is it would calculate the shortest blocks nearest you, then look at the options after you go that way. Then calculate again, find the shortest, calculate again, find the shortest, and he would do it block by block, street by street, section by section. Then once all the options were calculated, it would pick the shortest one. Funnily enough, it may seem really complicated, 
But Dykstra says he came up with this over his morning coffee while sitting on a terrace. <laughs> Versions of this shortest path algorithm are still used today in GPS and travel planning. When the GPS says recalculating, give it a break because it's literally recalculating so many options. It's working hard so you don't have to know the exact shortest path between two spots. That's literally just one of many algorithms that are working just inside your car. So remember, we're gonna try and run an errand. So, so far, this algorithm has made it so we can find our way more easily. Now, there's traction control algorithms, sensors on each wheel. Those all have algorithms that are feeding in torque, speed, brake pressure, and they're finding a slip rate that automatically pumps the brakes on the wheel so that the tire doesn't slip too much. On the way to your doctor, the doctor's office is using my DNA, knowing that I'm coming in that day, to check against any known conditions that are out there in the scientific world. The algorithm is using gene data in combination with any symptoms that I've reported and going through a knowledge base of medical literature to see if there are any overlaps. Then it sorts the results and ranks them so that the doctor just looks at the top and says, oh, well, you might have these things. Let's talk about it. Once I get to the doctor, there are records in a database every drug I've ever taken, every allergy that I have, that's all there. But the doctor, she doesn't have time to look at all of that stuff. So an algorithm could check my drug-drug interactions automatically against papers that data mine millions of reports filed with the FDA to see if the new drug she wants to put me on would interact in any way with the drugs that I'm already taking. This could reveal possible side effects and drug-drug interactions by digging through these medical reports and also available patient histories. That algorithm doesn't exist yet, but they're working on it. So let's say now I leave the doctor's office and I'm hungry. I've never been in this neighborhood. An algorithm could help me find a place to eat. It can rank choices by ratings and distance and use data like whether they're open or not. If I'm stuck at a traffic light, there are new algorithms to think about like data on waiting time, real-time traffic monitoring. Why is this traffic light taking so long? Well, maybe there are vehicles entering and leaving this intersection at such a rate that the algorithm that runs the traffic light is holding me here for a little bit to keep things flowing smoothly. It's actually still an experimental algorithm, by the way, but it says it could increase movement in traffic by 25% overall. So now I found a restaurant and I'm there and I'm eating lunch and I'm scrolling through my favorite shopping website. The shopping website is using algorithms to see exactly what it is that I might wanna buy, trying to get me one to spend some money, but also stay on their website and keep me happy. So it's looking at my past purchases and how much they were and how long it took me to decide and it's showing me matches that would be a high probability for me to like them so that I would click to buy them. And let's say I do, I find something I like, I'm gonna buy it. My credit card is then hashed by another algorithm. That is, it's made into a seemingly random set of characters. The website looks at their servers, which is another algorithm, sends that over the internet, which is another algorithm, to my bank, which finds the account, which is another algorithm, and compares the hashed credit card to the credit card on their file. And it confirms that, yes, that's his credit card, then uses an algorithmically generated email to me with the purchase price, the cost, the time of day, when it will arrive. All of these steps in this process, there's sorting and coordinating data over and over and over and over. And it has a deep understanding of all the steps in this process, thanks to all these algorithms. I look at this whole errand, doctor, driving direction process, and I see a whole bunch of different things. One, 
My fictional life sounds actually pretty nice, right? I don't need a map. I don't need to memorize my medical history. The doctor doesn't need to know all these drugs or allergies and stuff that I have. All of that is thanks to an algorithm. But you can also see the other side of it. Do I really want algorithms to know all this information or have all of these things broken into processes? Part of being human is I should be able to just like wander around my city and try and find all of these restaurants. But what if the restaurant was rated poorly by the algorithm and it closed, but it was my favorite restaurant? Imagine if you go to school and your teacher is governed by an algorithm. Imagine if your teacher was an algorithm. Do we really want algorithms running everything? Algorithms are strings of mathematical statements that weigh different things and sort through information, which sounds familiar because that's how we started the last section. But this time, it's horrifying, right? This episode is about how algorithms can make humanity so, so much worse. The reason being, even though we think of algorithms as this beautiful computational thing that's sorting through all this information in the background and it's the cornerstone of all these different businesses, algorithms at the end of the day are built by people. Algorithms might seem like faultless machines. If it does something wrong, it's just a bug. We can fix that bug. But again, algorithms are created by people. So let me give you an example of how algorithms can make life worse. Is a whisk, like in the kitchen, or a carpet, like on the floor, a gendered item? Is one of those things feminine or masculine? In a study using image recognition algorithms, women were associated with the kitchen. The algorithm saw a whisk and thought, kitchen, that must be a woman thing. They didn't specifically program the algorithm to say that or to do that. It was the subconscious bias of the humans that built the algorithm that put that in there. The computer only amplified it because it was using a set of rules to solve a problem. Computers don't think, oh, well, I probably shouldn't have that thought. They just do what they're told. So in fact, when the algorithm started to see these gendered terms, its bias was increased by the rules it was given. Bias, by the way, in programming is over or under sampling of data in comparison to reality. It's not about perception of reality. A researcher at Oxford in Data Ethics and Algorithms wrote, quote, the world is biased. The historical data is biased. Hence, it is not surprising that we receive biased results. Now, the world isn't getting worse because of algorithms necessarily. It's just getting different. And it's not just in sexism. For example, the MIT Tech Review wrote about a Harvard professor that was doing some research. If you search for black sounding names on Google, the Google ads, those things along the side of the search, are about arrests, background checks and criminal activity. Why? Because someone programmed the algorithm to do that, potentially. It could also be because it's reading society and it's holding a mirror to different things that we value and different things that we do. Do humans treat people with black sounding names differently, better, worse? Not really, although Resumes with African-American or Asian-sounding names are less likely to get interviews. They're less likely to get hired. So if we built an algorithm to do a human's job in those areas, the algorithm might also bias. It might also not hire people with certain names because of something that we put into the algorithm. Doesn't this mean that we can fix the algorithm? You know, it's just a bug. This is a faultless computer, but it's gonna hurt people first, right? It's going to have to be spotted, 
We're gonna have to find the problem and then we're gonna have to fix it. Now I'm not saying algorithms are evil. However, let's say you wake up and you open Instagram. And the first thing you see is a photo of your recent ex, right? Not a great way to start the day. You just broke up. You don't feel so good about it. But the algorithm on Instagram knows that you have a relationship with that person or had for now. You shared a lot with that person. You liked their photos. They liked your photos. And it figured you'd like to see their photo in your feed. They may not necessarily know that you broke up. Maybe they may think that you're going to comment or like or interact with that photo anyway. It's just doing its job. It's an algorithm. But damn, that's cold, right? It knew and did it anyway. So now you're up and you open your news app and the news is telling you about the stock market. By the way, in the stock market, algorithms are doing some of the trading now. It eliminates a human waiting for a certain price to buy or sell. It also eliminates another human waiting on the other side of that same transaction. The computer just watches the stock price and triggers the sell or buy ticket. Easy, simple algorithm. The thing is, what if there are multiple algorithms running at the same time? What if something happens out in the world and the computers are unaware, right? There are factors that are involved that algorithms might not take into account. For example, in May of 2010, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 1,000 points in just minutes. That's, quote, one trillion of value that was erased from the US stock market in minutes. Quote, some orders were executed at irrational prices, as low as a penny or as high as $100,000 before the share prices returned to their pre-crash levels. How they did this? Algorithms. Computers triggered again and again, freaking out. And they connected to each other and said, oh my God, you're freaking out, I'm freaking out. We need to sell these things, we need to buy these things. And they did it so fast that no human could have stopped it. It happened in mere minutes. Nobody even knew what had happened and it was already over. Eventually, of course, the levels did return to normal, thank goodness, but ouch, those algorithms could really have messed up the world economy. In a world with fake news, flat earthers, and conspiracy theorists, what's a thinking person like you supposed to do? Think like a skeptic, of course, on the current episode of Star Talk All-Stars, neuroscientist and host Heather Berlin, PhD, and her comic co-host Ari Shafir investigate the importance of skepticism and the power of evidence-based thinking. To help us separate fact from fiction, Heather and Ari are joined in studio by guests Cara Santa Maria and Dr. Stephen Novella, two of the hosts of the popular weekly science podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. If you're worried about the growing tide of anti-intellectualism and the devaluation of experts and facts, which we're seeing all around us, tune in for a show filled with science and skepticism. Remember, trust no one, question authority, and listen to Star Talk All-Stars to get the rigorous scientific thinking that you're desperate to hear. That's Star Talk All-Stars. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to subscribe. Okay, so back to our evil algorithm day in the life. So let's say you've scrolled through Instagram, you've read your news app, the stock market seems to be okay. Now you're heading out for the day. You had breakfast at a coffee shop, you went to the bathroom, and you went to wash your hands. But your skin, it's darker than, say, a white Caucasian. You're a person of color. The soap dispensers just don't work. The white guy next to you, he comes in, he needs soap, no problem, soap comes out. You try again, no soap. The algorithm in the soap dispenser is taking input from an infrared camera. The infrared bounces off of darker skin and triggers soap differently than it does 
on white skin. So no soap for you. Could be an algorithm, could be mechanical, whatever it is, that is terrible. Thanks, algorithms. Then you go back out into the store and you open up Facebook and you want to post about your day and about this finding of this stupid soap dispenser. But studies are finding that doing so and posting too often can cause emotional health decline. Facebook's algorithm can tell what's in a photo, can share photos based on stuff that people would like to get them to keep using Facebook. And it does this whether you want it to or not. If you post something and the algorithm doesn't like it, people won't see it. Even if you think it's really important, that doesn't necessarily mean Facebook thinks it's important. Even if your friends might think it's important, if they don't act on it and train the algorithm to show them that kind of photo, they're not gonna see it. There's a study that found that people often feel ignored on Facebook. Users describing their existence felt, quote, less meaningful when others did not like or share their statuses and comments. That's a lot of power to give an algorithm over your life. And in fact, another study, Independence on Social Networks, found that social media can be harmful to your emotional health in general. So now you're home, you're lonely, you're depressed, you didn't wash your hands, so you feel kind of gross. And wow, have algorithms been there every step of the way, making sure that your life is not going well. Yes, this episode is a little more dramatic than usual on Seeker Plus, in part because many of these algorithmic problems are a little more nebulous, or they affect very specific groups. It's hard to say that all algorithms are bad. In the same way, it's hard to say all algorithms are good, especially now that you know they've existed for thousands of years. But the way that we teach machine learning algorithms to do things is by showing them data and as we say, they would use this as a base. All those yellow things, those are bananas. All those, those are monkeys. See the lips and the forehead, see the hair on the body. What's to stop the algorithm from labeling people as monkeys? What's to stop the algorithm from getting bad training? And it has. Google labeled two black friends gorillas. Flickr labeled a black man as an ape. Not cool algorithms, but also not cool humans who programmed them. Because again, people provided this base data. Are algorithms evil? No, but they can act evil. I'm gonna reiterate that quote from earlier because I think that's really the crux of this. The world is biased, the historical data is biased, hence it is not surprising that we receive biased results. Hopefully, we're all using these technological embarrassments as an excuse to confront that these unconscious bias exists in ourselves and thus we should fix our algorithms. Personally, I learned a lot about algorithms from this series. Look around you right now, everything with a computer, everything that has a process, everything with an electronic bit in it, every cookbook that is in your kitchen has an algorithm in it. You are surrounded by them. And actually, even though we were just talking about how many of them can be used for evil, it's pretty amazing how many there are and what they can do, isn't it? It's one of the most powerful inventions, I would guess, that humans have ever created. And hopefully, we use our power with great responsibility. Thanks so much for hanging out with us here on Seeker Plus today. Just a reminder, I'm Trace. You can find more Seeker at youtube.com slash Seeker. You can also find my own channel, youtube.com slash Trace Dominguez. This episode was written by me 
and fact-checked and produced by Lauren Ellis. It was edited by Alex Estevez and recorded by Spencer Snyder. Thanks again for listening to Seeker Plus. We're going to be releasing and rebroadcasting updated versions of our episodes on this channel every week. We'll be punctuating those with new episodes, so make sure that you stick around, like, share with your friends, and leave us a rating. We'll see you around. Stay tuned for the upcoming series next week. I'm Trace. Thanks again.